appropriate hymn to remember the Red Sea deliverance, which also remembers the deliverance out of sin and death and is a resurrection walk, as it were, for God's people. Good hymn for us to remember what we'll be looking at now as we go back again into the book of Exodus. This evening we'll be returning to the look we did two weeks ago, not last week when Camden was here last Sunday evening, but uh, two weeks ago when we began to look at the second commandment. So we will continue to look at the second commandment this evening. I'll be reading verses 4 through 6 of Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the, on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let us now ask God's blessing on his holy word. Oh God, we do ask as we come to the perfect word, hearing it preached from a most imperfect servant, that you would speak to us even by the voice of our great prophet, our king, even the voice of Jesus Christ. May that voice go forth this evening. May it be heard by your people. May it result not only in you, O God, being further glorified, but may it result in your people knowing you in a deeper and richer way, in a way that enriches their worship of you. For we know that we were created to worship you. Oh, Lord, do this by the grace that we find in Christ and for your own namesake and glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, we come back to the Ten Commandments. And uh, we remember we have looked at the first commandment. The first commandment shows us distinctively who it is we are to worship. We are to worship the Lord Yahweh, the triune God of the Bible, exclusively and wholeheartedly. The second commandment is really not about who we worship, but it is about how, how we are to worship. Now, I began to set that forth last time. Uh, that is our understanding as a Reformed church, but again, as I mentioned last time, uh, not all Christian traditions understand this the same way. In fact, a number, you might think particularly of uh, the Lutheran tradition as well as Roman Catholicism regards what we regard as two commandments only as one commandment. So they, uh, for them, it does not address the issue really of how to worship, but only who to worship. And uh, last time we saw that, uh, you know, okay, well, Lutheran, uh, Reformed, other traditions, what do we do? Do we pull out our coin and flip it and, oh, heads, Reformed. <laughs> we'll go that way. No, of course not. What does 
one of the so beautiful aspects of who we are as Reformed people is that um, we believe in the doctrine of sola scriptura. And that applies even in such a matter as figuring out uh, uh, the matter of the commandments of God, the 10 words which are spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 4, which are which and how do we understand them and how we apply them. We don't flip a coin. We don't just say, well, we're in the reform camp. We, we go that way. And so we looked last time at Deuteronomy chapter 4, which I will not rehearse the, all the ins and outs of, but I believe we saw at that time that Scripture itself guides us to see. It provides strong, strong evidence for uh, the, the position that we do hold to. Namely, that there is a distinct commandment found in verses 4 through 6 of Exodus chapter 20, distinct from what comes before it, one which addresses really the question of how we are to worship. And we saw uh, last time, namely, without images. And one more point of summary, if I may, from last time before we move forward. Last time, we specifically looked at the second commandment as it related uh, to Israel of old. Uh, we saw how, particularly how Israel broke not only the first commandment, but also the second commandment in, in uh, Exodus chapter 32. Remember, uh, the people come to Aaron, and for their part, they're more than willing to break the first commandment. <laughs> Here's all this gold, uh, make us some gods. And, you know, Aaron comes back and he says, well, uh, tomorrow we will hold a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. And really, as it is, as that golden calf is crafted and comes to the hand of Aaron, it is presented as the Lord himself to be worshipped through that image. And we saw, of course, how displeasing that is to God. God cares not only that worship be directed or perhaps through Aaron redirected the right way, but also how he is worshipped. And so uh, we have looked at the commandment in relation to Israel. And so tonight, as I promised, I want to look at it in relation to Jesus Christ and in relation to us as the people of God. So let's commit, consider the second commandment in uh, those two lenses, in light of those two lenses, the second commandment in relation to Christ and the second commandment in relation to us, God's people. Well, first of all, the second commandment in relation to Christ. Now, let me pause just a moment. I'm, I'm going to direct us in a very clear way to Christ. But even as we do that, we need to, for one more moment, step back into the Old Testament to properly see how this commandment relates to Christ. And I'm about to make a point. Uh, I regarded it. I hope you will regard it this way. I regard it as a very profound point, a point which I think is not very often even brought into mind of many. And so if you, if you have not given thought to what I'm about to tell you, I encourage you to do that. You see, um, we have seen already that God prohibits worshiping him through images. Why? <clears throat> because we saw, for example, uh, he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 as the I am, the unbounded one. Not only does he forbid images because he does not have a body, he is not essentially material. 
He, he is, as we talked about last time, essentially invisible, which relates to that idea, as our standards show us, of him being unbounded, his infinity. Not only are those the reasons why God prohibits the making of images, they just uh, stand in contrast to who he is. They bound him, whereas he is unbound and unboundable. Consider this. Now, here's the new point I want us to move on to. Um, consider this. Uh, the first point, I guess, is also profound. So let's say an additional, additional profound point. In the Old Testament, when we look at pagan religions, in the Old Testament, the worshipers of the pagan gods, they, are, they themselves are the ones who create the images of their gods. And then what do they do with those images? They, they bring them, they take them, and they put them in the temples of their gods. The God of the Bible does not have his worshipers create images of him and put those images in his temple. Here's the remarkable thing I'm getting at right now. The God of the Bible, he himself creates images and he then places them in his temple. We see this as early as Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 27, God makes an image of himself. Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God makes the image. Then what does he do? I said the pagan worshipers make the image and then go put it in his temple. Well, we see the next thing that God does after having created the image is he puts it in the temple. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man, who we just read was in his image. He put the man, he put the image bearer he had formed in that garden. You see, from the beginning, the images of God in God's temple, and we really are to stand, understand Eden as the original temple. There are so many good uh, books on this, and I won't try and go into it, but there are many which, which point out how the, the later, the imagery that we see in the temple and the tabernacle replicates what was present in Eden. But from the beginning, the images of God in God's temple, unlike the images in the pagan temples, these images are not what is being worshipped. They are the ones doing the worshipping. The images of God worship the God whom they image. In fact, I said there are many... Uh, Good resources. I would even commend you. We prayed a moment ago for the work of Reform Forum. Camden did a wonderful work a few years ago. Uh, Lane Tipton assisting in the, the Foundations of Covenant Theology course. They go into some of these things. And so in one sense, what is or who is the image of God in his temple? In one real sense, you and I, we are the image of God placed in his temple. Now, all of that is an introduction to the main point, which I'm getting at now, which is to consider the second commandment in relation to Christ. You see, while the Bible rightly identifies you and me as the made images 
of God, the created images of God, if you will, there is another image of God who is unmade, who is uncreated. Who is this one that I speak of? He is the one that Paul tells us about in Colossians 1.15. Listen to this language. It is such rich language, so helpful to understand as we connect the dots here. Uh, Paul says of God's Son, He is the image of the invisible God. The Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God. So as we understand a moment ago, I spoke about how human beings are the image. There's a sense in which we are the image of the image. In other words, we were created to reflect the glory of the triune God who is perfectly imaged, perfectly, fully, exhaustively in a way that we will never image God in his son. The writer of the Hebrews really makes the same point in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint, the exact imprint of his nature. I can only begin to hint of the, the rich fullness involved here, but I hope your interest is piqued to learn more about how the biblical image of God, whom you are created in, images, is the image not of some bare Unitarian God. The image of God in which you are created is the image of the triune God. You are created in God's image and in a unique way related to the one who is the image of the invisible God. By the way, Paul immediately goes on in Colossians to talk about Christ is the creator of all things, which include us who are the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who radiates his image out unto the created order, as he is called there, the firstborn over all creation. Now, when Paul speaks of the one who is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15, he has in mind God's son even before he takes on human flesh. That's an important point to make. Because now I want to transition us, having Consider the second commandment in, in relation to who Jesus is, even before he takes on flesh. I now want to move us into our second consideration. And we'll see how there's a really a seamless connection between the image as it relates to Christ, who is eternally the image of the invisible God. And now uh, the second commandment in the matter of images in relation to us. Now, full heads up as we move to the second point. The, the, the second commandment in relation to us. Um, uh, we, we are going to have to ha have yet a, a, another look at this next week because there's just so much rich material that I want to have us look at. So we will consider and we will look fully and exclusively as, as to the meaning of this commandment in your life even more next week. But we'll begin to unpack it now. Now, what I'd like to narrowly look at, we'll get much broader next week, but what I'd like to narrowly look at tonight is the issue of whether or not we should make images of Christ. Now, it's interesting how I wrote this point 
And now how I'm looking out <laughs> to the audience here, seeing who's here. So maybe someone different is uh, watching online. But the point that I have in the notes here is that if you are new to the reform camp, there, there are not any really new to the reform camp that I see here, but perhaps some will be watching that. And even if you're not new, it's perhaps good, good that we hear uh, some things which you may have already heard before. Uh, but uh, the person new to the reformed camp may be saying, what? I've never heard of this before. We, we can't make images of Christ. Uh, don't you reformed people believe that Jesus was human? Are you some kind of Gnostic kooks? Remember, the Gnostics were the ones who denied that Jesus had a body and that we, he was truly human. Well, let me first show you how our standards interpret the second commandment, and then let me show you why this is not a kookery. <laughs> that may be a word that I just made, made up. Uh, why this is not craziness, in fact. Uh, first of all, this is what the uh, Reformed historically teach, and it is even taught in our standards. We see it particularly expressed in the larger catechism. Larger catechism, question 109. What sins are forbidden in the second commandment? And I'm not going to read the full answer. It's, it's a lengthy one. I'm going to read only a very small portion of it, which says this. The making of any representation of God, and note the second part, or all or of any of the three persons. Now, if images of all or any of the three persons are excluded, and what is what are our standards telling us that is, you know, saying at least that's sinful to do? It's to make images of Jesus because he is one of the three persons. Uh, how is it that the Reformed Church has historically understood the second commandment to teach this? How has the Reformed Church drawn that conclusion in light of the fact that we do affirm that Jesus had a body, that people once gazed upon him and saw him. He had a uh, full human nature, which, yes, involved having a human body. Well, if you understand what we've already been speaking about in Colossians 1.15, you'll already discern, really, much of the reason why. Colossians 1.15, which we looked at, said that this Son of God is the image of the invisible God. And so you may already be seeing why the reform go this way, but let me spell it out particularly. And I'd like to do so by reading a few uh, notable, uh, the words of a few notable voices in the reformed camp. One helpful voice, I think, is the voice of Thomas Watson, an important English Puritan who wrote on the Ten Commandments. And he wrote this, if it is not lawful to make the image of God the Father, yet may we not make an image of Christ who took upon him the nature of man. The answer? Uh, Watson is very strong. <laughs> His answer on this. Let me read his strong answer and then I'll explain it a little bit. No! Epiphanes, and this fellow Epiphanes is a 4th century bishop, seeing an image of Christ hanging in a church uh, broke it in pieces. It is Christ's Godhead united to his manhood that makes him be Christ. 
You get that? It's his Godhood united to his manhood that makes him be Christ. Therefore, to picture his manhood when we cannot picture his Godhead is a sin because we make him to be but half Christ. We separate what God has joined. We leave out that which is the chief thing which makes him to be Christ. And certainly that is the chief thing which makes him to be Christ. Do you see what is being said here? The thought is that to present Christ visually is necessarily, necessarily to present him in a one-sided way. It is to present his humanity, but only his humanity. A humanity uh, stripped apart, pulled apart, as it were, from from the divine person who is the eternal image of the invisible God. It is to, um, so, and, and many in the reform camp said, this is why it was so likened, uh, likened it to an early church heresy called Nestorianism, where this fellow Nestorius, or perhaps some of his followers, had a Christ who, who really was not one person, who was two persons, the, 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 the God and the man. And of course, the problem with that position is, which one of those saves you? The answer is, you've got the wrong Christ. John Owen, a famous English Puritan as well, wrote this uh, in The Glory of Christ. He says this, The beauty of the person of Christ as represented in the scripture consists in things invisible unto the eyes of flesh. They are such as no hand of man can represent or shadow. It is the eye of faith alone that can see this king in his beauty. What else can contemplate on the untreaded glories of his divine nature? Can the hand of man represent the union of his natures in the same person wherein he is peculiarly amiable? What eye can discern the mutual communications of the properties of his different natures in the same person which depends thereon? Whence it is that God laid down his life for us and purchased his church with his own blood. In other words, he's saying, as, as the book of Acts does, we'll see later in the book of Acts, that's where that statement comes from, that God purchased his church with his blood. God purchased, not just man. There is no pulling away of the two natures. Owen goes on to say, however such pictures may be adorned, however beautified and enriched, they are not that Christ which the soul of the spouse does love. They are not any means of representing his love unto us or conveying our love unto him. They only divert the minds of the superstitious persons from the Son of God unto the embraces of a cloud composed of fancy and imagination. And one other voice, uh, that is the voice of another English Puritan here, Thomas Vincent, writes this. The the English Puritans were not the only ones who held held this view. Calvin and others do, Puritan. Uh, But uh, Vincent says this. Now, this is Vincent's catechism on the shorter catechism. Of course, only the Reformed can have catechisms on catechisms. But it's a very helpful tool, actually. It's very useful. He says this. Is it not lawful, and this he's saying something a little new, a little different. There's a repetition, but there's also something added in what he says. Is it not lawful to have pictures of Jesus Christ, he being a man as well as God? 
And here's what Vincent says. He says, it is not lawful to have pictures of Jesus Christ because his divine nature cannot be pictured at all. Now that we have seen. But then he goes on and says something a little new and very significant. And because his body, as is it is now glorified, cannot be pictured as it is. You get that? Vincent's point, which is uh, quite an insightful one, is this. Not only do images misrepresent, do they distort the person of Christ by utterly excluding the divine nature, they even misrepresent the human nature. Because the human nature, even his body, is a human nature, which is now suffused and glorified by the uh, divine presence of God spiritually. It is as much enveloped in God's own presence and glorified in the spirit as a human body can be. It's notable that the only description of what Christ looks like, you want to know, does the Bible ever tell us what Christ looks like? What about his, his face? Give us a depiction of his face. Well, it does. Very interesting one. It's found in Revelation 1.16, where John says of this glorified Christ, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That is the Christ, the the human and the divine Christ. That is who Christ is and the whole Christ, even his human nature radiating the glory of God like the sun in all of its strength. I dare say we don't see too many uh, portraits of Christ painted that way. Moreover, Vincent goes on to say this. And here yet is another very helpful point. Very helpful indeed. He says this. And because if it, now this is probably an old English way of speaking, it will sound a little bit different from our grammar, but he says this, speaking of the picture, the image. If it do not or does not stir up devotion, it is in vain. If it do stir up devotion, it is worshiping by an image or picture. And so a palpable breach of the second commandment. Now, maybe you didn't understand what he's saying, but it's quite an amazing point. He's saying this, he says, hey, Let me translate that into the vernacular. Hey, if you see a picture of Jesus, which he's already said you can't really properly represent, uh, but that point aside, if you see such a picture and you say, well, I'm not worshiping the picture, nor am I worshiping through the picture, then what's true of you or me if we do that? What's true of you or me is this, is we are being confronted with a representation of Christ. And we are failing to do the only proper thing that any human being should do when confronted with Christ. The only thing that we ought to do is worship him. Again, that's the very interesting thing. People say, well, I'm having the image, but not worshiping. Well, why? (laughs) In other words, his point is, If we have images but do not worship them, we are guilty of impiety. If we have images and do worship them, we are guilty of idolatry. It's it's a real conundrum. It's a real challenge. You are uh, in trouble to do or to not to do. Now, why am I making such a big deal of this? 
couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's very important to go where the scriptures lead us. It's important to think about our theology and understand uh, Christ and the fullness of who he is. But here's the real reason why this should be so important to you. A Christ who is only human. A Christ who is, who is human and not simultaneously 100% God in one person, a divided Christ, a schizophrenic person, a person who is not fully the God-man, the Theanthropos. That one cannot save you. Only he who is both God and man, an undivided Christ, an undivided person, He and he alone can save you. He is the one that you need. Any other is a vain idol. He is the one that you need to see. And a a passage just comes to my mind right now. I I don't have in my notes, but it's so helpful on this point. Uh, Let me simply turn to it. It's found in the prologue of John, which I've been uh, thinking of a lot lately. We read in the prologue of John, the final uh, verse. Excuse me, verse 14. Uh, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now notice this. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They say, well, people who were walking around, they saw this Christ, who they just saw the physical Christ. That's not what John says. They say when they saw him, they saw the glory of God, that when they saw him and recognized who he was properly as he stood before them, not, not an image of him, but him, They saw the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He and he alone is the one that you need. He and he alone is the one who can save you. Let me end with this question from uh, the larger catechism on why it is requisite, why that you need a mediator who should be God and therefore to depict him in a way which does not bring into view his deity. Is, is to have a kind of Savior who you are not in need of. It says this in verse 38, Why is it requisite that the mediator should be God? It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his Favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Only the eternal Son of God, only the one who is the image of the invisible God, who becomes flesh and who does not lay aside that glory, but those who behold him see the glory of that one who is fully God and fully man. Only he can save you. That's why this, I think, is not such a trivial issue. We don't want to make it the only thing that we ever talk about. In fact, I probably won't talk about it a whole lot other times. But that's why I think it is an important issue and why we should uh, um, 
think about how we worship the Lord, particularly in this narrow way. And we'll come next week to look more broadly about the question, how do we worship? Not just who do we worship. We'll go beyond images of Christ. We'll look more fully at the regulative principle next week. Let's pray.